Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times and by Daniel Storey, the author and columnist. Here we go then, four English clubs, not teams, in the two main European finals. Arsenal and Chelsea are the warm-up acts for Tottenham and Liverpool. City, the team that won the treble, are on the beach. What does all this say about the state of play, Johnny? Well, if I was continental European, I'd be a little bit worried about this being a a precedent and, and something we might see in future years quite a lot. I mean, we know that the Premier League is is by far the richest league and, and that sort of um, strength and depth of the, the competition is seen and how powerful the top six are, even though we can see they're not actually that good at times at home, have been pretty powerful in Europe. And then you add that with the, the fact that the, the, the big European powers are in different stages of transition, but I don't think... You know, I think they're all at different points of the cycle, but but none of them, I'm talking about Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, PSG, none of them are, you know, the the, the sort of convincing, um, ready-made competitive team at the moment. They've all got big issues to face. Um, and, you know, you look at even Arsenal and Chelsea being in that Europa League final without even getting it right. You know, there's so much scope for those teams to improve. There's so much scope for Manchester City to really do something in future years. And if Manchester United ever get it right, they, they'll, they'll be competitive as well. So I think unlike maybe 10 years ago where there was that phase of English clubs dominating, but then was superseded by Barcelona and a slightly different way of doing things, that, that doesn't look on the horizon at the moment. And we could see, you know, 10 years of this or more, I don't know. Because mm. we do live in an increasingly elitist world, don't we, Dan? Yeah, we do, uh, and and to an extent, this domination is is overdue. You know, rather than than English clubs overperforming this season, it, mm. flip that on its head. It's it's that they've underperformed in recent years. Barcelona's rise was was, uh, if not entirely pure, was certainly a, a, a they would feel a sporting rise. Um, but money speaks you know, speaks louder than anything else, and and our clubs have have underperformed for too long. Um, it's been. It's been deemed as unacceptable within a number of those clubs. Um, Manchester City, probably the obvious one now. Mm. You know, Pep Guardiola was not appointed to, to even to, to to establish a domestic legacy. It was to it was to win in Europe, and they will hope to do that. Uh, so I, I I absolutely agree with Jonathan. I think it's probably the start of something fairly long term, as long as they continue to 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 see money in as an assistance rather than a guarantee of success. Because I think that's what happened before now. Yeah. I think they thought, we've got a lot of money, this will be easy, we don't really need to do anything, we don't need to be smart. If you look at a club like Liverpool that are being smart and have the money, that's when 
things yeah. really, mm. you know, that's when things really come to the fore. Mm. And, they, and they are being really smart in mm. terms of, you know, I know you were over in Marbella in their, in their um, you know, pre-final mm. camp, Johnny. The whole idea, we talk about Liverpool in terms of passion, but let's look at the pragmatism, let's mm. look at the planning. It's pretty impressive, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, Klopp's brand, of course, is is the passion and the organised chaos, the spontaneity. But that's not actually how he operates as a as a person. He's he's a, he's a very strategic thinker, and his previous jobs have involved building over seven year periods. And he's now in the middle of a cycle at Liverpool, and you can see things getting better and better every year. And, you know, you look at this year with the improvement in set pieces, for example, something that was worked for and planned for rather than it's happened by accident. Mm. Klopp and his, his staff sitting down at the beginning of the season and, and saying, look at the quality of guys we've got to deliver the ball, look at the, the, the quality of heading power that we've got, we really should be doing something with this. And you know, Peter Kravitz and the analysis team went away and really focused on that area. The, the opposition analysts that Liverpool have got looked at opposition weaknesses and, and Liverpool's in-game analysts looked at what they could be doing and came up with, a, you know, at the start of the season, uh, a, a new set of set pieces, something that they could work on throughout the year, which has been part of Liverpool's training, you know, starting in pre-season and, and weekly basis. And that's, that's only one thing, you know, that Liverpool, in terms of nutrition, in terms of fitness and conditioning, um, in terms, I, I would say, in terms of tactics now, I think Pep Linders has helped Klopp evolve his own tactics. You know, they're, they're pretty well up there with anybody. And that's before you talk about recruitment. And the way that that club is organised by Michael Edwards and uh, as a director of football, a sporting director, also backed by the ownership with Mike Gordon as a sort of conduit between FSG and, 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 and the club. You know, it, it's a club that at all levels is, is, is being run pretty strategically and with almost best practice, I would say. And then if on top of that you can retain the passion and the Liverpool um, you know, specialness that Klopp has been done a very good job at doing. That's a pretty potent mix. Mm. Because he, he, Klopp does say, this is the best team I've ever had. And he looked at last season in Kiev almost as the start point. Yeah, and I think, I think it is the best team he's ever had. I think the one remaining question is, is what sort of manager Jurgen Klopp is of a favourite? Mm. You know, he... he mm. His big disappointment, I would say, as Liverpool manager was the Europa League final in 2016 when they were favourites and lost to Sevilla. Now, it was a completely different team and it was very early in Klopp's cycle, but he has always produced this masterclass of making clubs feel bigger and teams feel bigger than they are. And that, that was his forte at Dortmund and it was at the start of Liverpool. They're a slightly different beast now. Mm. Certainly against Tottenham, they're a different mm. beast where they will be favourites. Uh, so I think there is still a question of how he deals with that um, that pressure of the favourites tag because it's not something he's used to. He always in Germany always had Bayern as that fallback option of we will never be as big mm. or as strong or as rich as this team, so they can be our enemy. It's a little bit different now, and I think that's probably the next stage. But let's face it, we've not. There's nothing we've seen at Liverpool so far that says he isn't the man to do that, or that he can't be incredibly successful as that kind of manager. It's just that that is a role he's not really taken mm. on board yet. Mm. I suppose what he, what he has done well is almost detect the human balance in that squad in the way that he deals with individual players so you do see you know people like, i know you saw joel matin mm -hmm. now he's come through unheralded by by many and actually will do a very good job for them yeah i think he represents how klopp 
invests in, in people, really. You know, he was Klopp's first signing and, and had quite a good impact initially. And then um, I wouldn't say underperformed or lost his way, but he's someone that just didn't quite stamp his authority on the position. But Klopp's retained belief in him. And, and uh, you know, three years on, Matip is now f- starting to fulfil, and maybe it's the chemistry's right between him and Van Dijk, but is, is now able to fulfil what, what Klopp brought him there for. And actually, Matip's only 27, so it was a case of investing in a young player. And you could see that with Trent Alexander-Arnold, who was mm. almost had L-plates on when he came into the team, because he hadn't really played fullback, And he got better and better, and some of the positional errors he used to make you know, been cleaned up. Joe Gomez is a similar case. Um, Alex Oxley-Chamberlain, you see Fabinho, how long it took him to sort of be bled into the team. It's happened again with Naby Keita. Yeah, who's, who's going to miss the final. Yeah, yeah, which which is a big miss for Liverpool. Mm. But I think you're right, Mike, and it, when, when you talk about the human principle, that is right at the centre of, of Klopp's management. And um, it, it, it's why that when you look at that squad, there's a... There's a sense that they all owe something to him, I guess. They all owe something to the club that they're at. And there's a loyalty there. Um, there's no sense that any of them feel that they're above the team that they're playing for. Rather, they, they feel they owe quite a lot to it. And again, that's a, a sort of potent element in, in making a, a team bigger than the sum of its parts. Mm. Because character's a really underrated thing, isn't it, Dan? Mm. You look at someone like James Milner, Look at Virgin Van Dyke, who, if you look at, if, if you want someone to embody the principles of intelligent, emotionally engaged leadership, you're looking at him, aren't you? Yeah, you are. And, and, and a strong part of Liverpool's recruitment has been, you know, they, there is an analysis there of, mm. of the measurables, but they, they also do focus on those immeasurables. Mm. And, and in Klopp, they've got, a, they've got a manager who is the, the poster boy for that combination of. You know, judging players on who they are, but also what they can do. Um, Van Dijk's the obvious example of that. And they also weren't afraid with him to pay huge money for someone if they thought that he could be their difference maker. You know, last season, that front three did, did all sorts of incredible things, but it's the defence that's been the difference mm. maker this season. Mm. It's the defence that everything's founded upon. And it's also the defence that the accusation against Klopp perhaps before was that he was a, a manager who got caught up in that excitement and maybe turned a blind eye to that at some points. And together with that recruitment department, they've, they've obliterated that reputation. Mm. That's exactly what it's built on. It's built on character, it's built on leadership, and it's built on um, set, you know, leading by personality, but also leading by example. Mm. We're, giving them, we're giving them the bigger <laughs> name. <laughs> um, where are the weaknesses? Well, I think, I guess the glaring football weakness in that team is the lack of creativity, the lack of the special player in midfield. And that's, that has been a problem for them at times. You, you, they, you know, they sold Coutinho and had a plan to replace him with someone like Lamar or um, Fekir, um, which, which never came to fruition. And I think there's still a vacancy there in, in the team. There's, there's, there's still a point where you know, they rely on the, the counter-pressing, they rely on energy and momentum to break the opposition. But sometimes against really good opposition, that's not going to work. And, and, and there is that lack of something slightly different. Um, I would struggle to think of many other weaknesses in the team. I mean, a lot of the things that we've talked about over the years have now gone. I think, mm. you know, we used to talk about, oh, they don't have a proper striker. Well, Firmino is just such a phenomenon in, in, in the what he gives overall to the team that nobody really talks about that anymore. And he looks likely to play. On and he looks like he'll be fit. 
you know, you look at you look at the fullback positions where that's always been a, a problem for Liverpool, at least for twenty years. And mm. I don't think you'd I don't think you'd swap Robertson and um and Alexander Arnold the way that Liverpool play anyway. I don't mm. think you'd swap them if you were Well I found it really ball. interesting. When you when you look at people's teams of the season, there are three Liverpool yeah. players in that back four pretty much uniformly. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the, the difference that they those two have made in a in an attacking sense, you know, twenty three league assists mm. between the pair. Um, that has inevitably covered for the, the creative midfield issue, yeah. hasn't it? I mean, it might be yeah. a, an accidental solution. I'm not sure Klopp necessarily yeah. saw it being quite this emphatic, the change from one season to the next in terms of those fullbacks creating, but it's sure it's perfectly covered yeah. for that central midfield issue. I think the only the only weakness is is uh, and you're searching for it, is if what happens if if something changes in game. Against against Barcelona they were Absolutely brilliant in that Robertson gets injured, Milner goes to left back, Van, Van Alden comes on and wins the game. Mm. That won't happen every time. I, I, I just wondered if something goes wrong in game, how do they react to that still? Well, that's, a good, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's a really good point because I guess the one thing Klopp, Klopp's a process manager. He's not a, you know, a tactician in the sense of ripping things up and doing something different. You know, he's, he's slightly like Guardiola in that sense. It's plan A and plan A plus sort of thing. So, that could be a weakness, and Tottenham have shown a great ability to to mm. kind of mess with opposition plans this this season. So that'll be the interesting mm. thing, doesn't it? If something goes wrong, as mm. you say, Dan. But if someone like Henderson, okay, we can, we can talk about some of the technical shortcomings in his game, but he's someone who can grab a game by the scruff of the neck just by force of his personality, isn't he? Yeah, and he, he's also playing that that role of of box-to-box midfielder now, what he might see as a, I'm sure he would love to see as a sort of Gerrard role of, in finals of being the man that leads the team that does set by example away from the back four. Um, it's slightly bizarrely, it's a role that, that Muta Sissoko has also taken on in the last mm-hmm. year. So there's this kind of re- double redemption of these two players who were Sissoko more than Henderson undervalued by their club but there was a kind of sense that Henderson was just a, a, a jobber or a, a do-gooder than a, mm. than a grabber of a game by the scruff of the neck and both of them have kind of earned that redemption of surging forward as well as protecting. Uh, Henderson will have more opportunity to do it than Sissoko I think because simply because Liverpool have got far many more central midfield mm. options than Tottenham at the moment. Mm. But If Virgil, Virgil van Dijk is Liverpool's heartbeat and Henderson provides the competitive mm. spirit. Who fulfills that role for Tottenham? I know you mentioned Sizoko, but who is the brain and yeah. the brawn involved in it? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a slightly different chemistry at Spurs because you do have a, a player who by reputation kind of overwhelms everyone else in terms of Harry Kane. And he does provide that kind of Harry Kane up an atom, you know, there's not a scintilla of self-doubt in Harry Kane, and I think that does help teammates. I think that does rub off. Um, I mean, Eriksen's obviously the the brain of the team, and I'd say that Vertonghen has had a very underrated season, even Tottenham career, because he he, he provides a element of composure and and um, yeah, not he doesn't quite have Van Dijk's aura, but when he's at the centre of the defence. He's the one that's sort of quietly leading it, and, and I think they're, they're hugely weakened when he comes out. And actually, you know, maybe a year ago we all thought Alderweireld was the, the senior partner, but what's happened this season's probably shown me that it's, it's actually Vertonghen. But they don't, they don't quite have the same kind of 
model as Liverpool. I think it's 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 probably more a leadership by the manager, even even more than than Liverpool is. Yeah, that is the point. He's been there what five years this week. Um, when you look at him, he, he he is different type of personality to Klopp, but there is still that emotional engagement with his players, isn't there? Yeah, and it's not it's not emotion for um, for its own sake. I think maybe even a year ago we might have accused Jurgen Klopp of 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 using emotion as a as a um, a very manufactured strategy rather than um, a bit of a brand building. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Whereas with Pochettino, we've never had that doubt. We've no. always known that the passion he has, and part of it stems from being you know, South American, and that's very mm. much inbuilt within them. But those, you know, that teary reaction after the Champions League semi final, that is all. That is all real. I that thought that all... was brilliant. I love yeah. that. And what it does is it. it, it, it Firstly, it takes the pressure off the players because it focuses it all on Pochettino. But secondly, it also tells his players, again, you don't have to separate out emotion and, and, you know, and head in the game. It's not about parking that emotion. It's about harnessing it and using it to the best of your ability and using it to, kind of, to, to take everything to the next stage. And that's what he's done mm. as a manager. Mm. His relationship with Daniel Levy has always been fascinating. Mm. Uh, and again, something you've done mm. some stuff on in the build-up to the final... Um, Johnny, are they hand in glove? I wouldn't say they're hand in glove, but the perception that there's an opposition between them, that, that, you know, poor old Poch, he wants all these signings and this nasty man won't deliver them. I mean, there's, a, there's so much buy-in between the two of them in, in terms of the whole Spurs project. Um, you know, they, they, they've got very open communication with each other. Um, if you read Poch's book, it's, it's fascinating in terms of the the, 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 the kind of I don't know, the Daniel Levy that you see in it is not the Daniel Levy that, that is the, the, you know, the public perception. Yeah, I mean, he's, the Gordon Gecko type figure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, there's so you know, it takes him to Argentina on a kind of, well, almost an extended kind of boys trip when they go whitewater rafting and riding and quad biking and paintballing and, and so on, you know, there's warm tales of, of, of Levy kind of taking all the wives and, and families to, to barbecues at his, his house and you actually sort of see him more on Poch's page than, than the other way around, I guess. But there's, I guess the point of that is there's a lot of communication between them. So every stage in the Tottenham project, I think Pochettino has been quite, uh, quite well, well briefed and on board about it. And, you know, Levy would argue that the reason that Spurs haven't signed anyone for 18 months is actually Pochettino. It's not him because Poch doesn't want to, to bring in players simply for the sake of it. Um, and there's, you know, as I say, this idea that, that you know one wants one thing and one wants the other. I, I don't think it's quite. I don't think it's quite true. Um, and Poch formed very close relationships with Cortesi at, at Southampton as well. Mm. So I think you know, what, what Daniel's talking about the, the, the way he operates as a person. I don't think he can work for someone that he doesn't have an emotional rapport with. Um, and. It is, it is a fascinating sort of mm. brother relationship between them, I guess. Mm. Because, you know, compared to Liverpool, they're on a, on a sort of different stage of the, of the cycle, aren't they, really, where Madrid probably is the start of something for them rather than when you look at Liverpool, it's a continuation of something. It is the start. I mean, it, it is also quite... If we were to be pessimistic, it's also quite easy to see where the end comes with Tottenham of this mm. cycle rather than Liverpool. I think with Liverpool, mm. 
you, you get the sense now that they would have to stuff things up quite badly for this to yeah. go south quickly. Mm. Um, with Tottenham, it's quite easy to see how those parts can fall apart because of the, you know, I, I know they've now broken their wage structure, but clearly they aren't paying as high a level. Mm. Um, I, I would be surprised if there are not some players in that team, I think Ericsson's one, who think that they've been worked incredibly hard over the last couple of years and wouldn't mind or have minded a little bit more support in the mm. positions they play in. And obviously they have a manager at a club who are not quite in that financial elite. And I absolutely agree that Pochettino does need these um, sort of non-business relationships yeah. to succeed. And there are, you know, there are clubs that have tried to attract Pochettino and would love to, who to them that is completely alien. Yeah. You know, Manchester United <laughs> and Real Madrid are two very obvious ones. Yeah. So there isn't a necessarily a, an immediate natural route out, but... If a club was to get it right and put things in place for Pochettino and he was to leave, it's quite easy to see how mm. players also leave and the club kind of tumbles back because they don't have the history of Liverpool. You speak to any supporter and they are inherently <coughs> pessimistic. They're inherently mm. um, waiting for the bad news. You know, They would say they're a club that snatches you know, draw or defeat from the jaws mm. of victory. So... It is easy to see how that happens again. What they have to do is just ride that wave and they have to make the most of absolutely every opportunity that Pochettino's given them because mm. they would be foolish not to now. Now, you know, we love a bit of conjecture, as, mm. as you all know. Mm. Um, you know. There is talk about Juventus. How seriously should we take that? I think Juventus are more likely to, to go for Sarri and, and, and you know, s- stick within those kind of traditional Juventus confines um, they tend to go for the, the, the best of Italy don't they um, mm. I think it, the thing about Poch and the, despite what I've said about Levy and him is there is this tantalising sort of narrative that he's created himself about how he could leave if, if, if he wins and I'm still not quite sure why he's done that um, but Keep, keeping the options open well, I suppose as we've been saying, he's a genuine person. So I don't think he's a he's, he's a game player. I don't think he sort of does these things from a Mourinho place. So there's there's something genuine there. Um, I, I guess if you win the Champions League with Tottenham, where is there to go? You know, when you've got Manchester City and Liverpool ahead of you in terms of the league and their squad power and all that sort of stuff, are you really going to win the league? So it would be a great way to to bow out, of course. But I think I think I think Pochettino is more likely to go if he wins than, than if he loses. And of course, if he, if, if he, if he does that, then there'll, there'll be every opportunity for someone to take him. But I also think he might take a sabbatical. Um, I, don't, I just don't see him at Juventus next year. Right. I can, I, I, can, I can see, actually, what a mental image of about 4,000 Spurs fans going straight on the phone <laughs> to their therapist. But um, again, on the similar theme, you mentioned Ericsson there, Daniel. A lot of links with, with Real Madrid, mm. that does make, from a Spurs point of view, a horrible amount of sense, doesn't it? Yes, because I think Christian Eriksen, he has been changed by Mauricio Pochettino. He's mm. been turned from this pure creator into uh, this kind of worker bee, this mm. poster boy, I guess, mm. for, for, the, for the kind of creation, but married with this intense pressing. You know, he covers more ground than any Tottenham player. He created, I think, 115 chances in his first season, down to 73 last season. So he's been blunted and he's been moved closer towards central midfield simply because there haven't been Mm. as many other options. And I think Real Madrid strikers a club that might give him a little bit more freedom positionally to, to make himself a star of the game. And I think he feels he could do that more if he was a creator than if he was mm. a worker. 
Uh, I don't. I'm not convinced the move will happen because I think they're probably, from what I understand, they're working hard to get the finances together to sign Eden Hazard to mm. add another hundred million pound player in there or eighty million pound player. They've already signed Militao from Porto, mm. so they've already spent fifty million. I'm just not sure the money's there, um, mm. which is is probably to Christian Eriksen's disadvantage mm. because I think I think he probably would quite like a move. Now. I think he feels like he's done his service and. Some Spurs supporters will always say, "Well, that's you know, you've left us in the, in the lurch." But he doesn't owe them anything anymore. He's mm. he nobody has changed their game more to suit Pochettino and Spurs mm. than Ericsson has. Mm. Mm. Does Delhi owe Spurs a performance in the final? Uh, yes, there's, I mean, there's there's a feeling with Delhi that he's always capable of more. I just I just wonder if he's actually not quite the player that we we thought he was. Um, I don't mean that in a negative way. I think maybe he's, he's, his attributes we've got to think of more as someone that plays in moments and um, maybe plays, you know, has one or two sort of interventions in a game but can be incredibly crucial interventions. I think when, when he was younger, we sort of thought, oh, well, look, that, that lad can play, you know, traditional British all-purpose midfielder. He's got the athleticism. He can put in a tackle. You know, he can run. He can all, all those things that we traditionally look at and think, "Well, that's that's a British midfielder." And the more you watch Delhi, the more you see someone that that plays in a in a different way. And and I think of the semi-final against Ajax, where he had a fairly anonymous game and yet two fantastic assists. They wouldn't have scored that that last-minute goal had it not been for just his. Lovely casual little ball through, and, and and that's that's his ability. I think he's got that that kind of that spark about him. And Pochettino, you know, talking about how Ericsson's been moved to accommodate or, or changed to accommodate Spurs' game, I think that's one of the big reasons. A couple of years ago, you'd have thought Delhi will be the player that will kind of you know do a lot of the work in midfield, um, mm. but he's actually allowed now under Poch to do his, his little little things and, and, and others have to pick up the slack. Mm. As a final point on, on this final, you know, I think there's a, a common acceptance that Spurs might be weak wide, you know, Trippier is having a you know, poor season, mm. he's just been dropped by England. Um, but also you've got, um, you know, the, the whole group isn't quite as strong as, as Liverpool's. Would you agree with that? I think that's, in terms of confidence, I think that's probably true. Yeah, yeah. I don't think, I don't think, <laughs> I mean, we're comparing two teams that are still incredibly confident. You know, this, it's not that they're half broken. Their form in the Premier League towards the end of last season was was poor, but I think that was probably down to fatigue and they've, they're going to have had a three-week break, which should address some of those concerns. Um, yeah, I think, I think defensively, it's, I presume Pochettino will play three at the back. He did it against most of the big clubs in late season mm. because then it gives Trippier and Rose the outlet to go forward. They're not as good as, as Robertson and Alexander-Arnold at getting back into position after, mm. after yeah. surging up, basically. So I think they need that stability, but they just don't have any central midfielders. Yeah. Harry Winks is going to be injured. Mm. Dembele's obviously gone. Wanyama might start, but has looked a make-do option mm. whose, whose legs are slightly going. So yeah. They might have to play a central midfield of Sissoko, Ali and Eriksen, which is... Yeah. Is attacking by default, not by design, really. Further forward, would you pick Kane or would you give Lucas Moura the opportunity to start? Hmm. It's one of those decisions that you look at and think, it's, it's, a, it's a hard job being a football manager. Because <laughs> if you were going to pick your, your first choice team now, you would pick Ali, Ericsson, Sissoko and then the other, th the other 
two then, which yeah. is has to be Kane and Son, mm. and because both are the first choice team, which is incredibly harsh on Lucas Moura. Mm. Um, I think he will probably look at that second half in, in Amsterdam and say, right, you've shown you can be an, an impact there. If we need you to be an impact substitute, mm. that's what you'll be. I suspect that'll be the team. Yeah, hard choice, but at least those players have got the right to be there. Mkhitaryan has the right yeah. to be and play in the Europa League final. And because of the politics of the venue, is at home. Yeah. That surely cannot be right. No, it, it's probably the consequence of, of, of where football decisions have been going for a number of years now in terms of who gets to host tournaments and, and, and finals. Um, you know, geopolitics is just so coming so more into in, into our world all the time it's now. Poisonous in football, it is poisonous, and um, I mean, this is this isn't. A, I guess that's not to say this is a political decision by Mkhitaryan. He's he, he's no. he's making a very human decision about his own safety, and that really that really can't be right. Um, I don't I don't see how he could go. But, you, you, you know, the point is that that's up to him. And, and if, if he feels he can't go, if one of the Arsenal's leading footballers can't go to where the final's being played because he doesn't feel safe, then you, you don't really need any more analysis than that. It's it's utterly wrong. And it's utterly wrong that UEFA's stance is, is really just to say, shut up and get on with it and, and um, allow the, the sort of propaganda then that's coming out of... Azerbaijan to say, well, this is this is all Mkhitaryan playing politics. Yeah, I know this is very, very unlikely ever to happen because of the nature of the modern game. But would Arsenal and Chelsea have been in, within their rights to just say, we're not they, playing? They, they would have been. And and yeah. and the surprising thing for me is is judging by the Arsenal fans' reaction, they would have been happy to do that. Mm. They would have been happy to take a stand and say, look, do you know what, enough is enough. Because until someone does do that, and yeah. and football clubs have far more uh, sway and responsibility than they, they normally accept, then it will carry on. Yeah. And people will, the, the line will keep being pushed and keep being pushed until someone does take a stand. And individuals sometimes do, but clubs very rarely do, and certainly very rarely do in in conjunction with one another because we view them as rivals. If they come together, that's an incredibly powerful mm -hmm. and important message. Um, I can see why they haven't. Uh, I can see why they feel that, you know, both have said, we will discuss this with UEFA after the event, which mm. I, I understand why that's happened, but it's, it's, um, it, at that point it's powerless and it's meaningless because the, mm. the job is done. Um, it's just PR puffery. Of course it then, is. It? But there has, there has been a stronger reaction from within Arsenal, the club and supporters, than I expected. Yeah. Uh, and it would, it, I think it's a shame that they haven't built upon that by, by taking a stand. I, it's, we're compromised by self-interest in, in football. And I, I wonder if there wasn't a Champions League place available for the winners, whether Arsenal would actually just scratch the game. And I, I, I understand completely mm. why they think, well, we can't quite give that up. That mm. up. But that's where football gets you. Mm. Gets you by self-interest and, and principle goes out the window. Yeah, not to mention you know, the inconvenience to fans who you know, we, we've spoken on here before about how you know, they're 25th in a, in a list of <laughs> 24 priorities, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And, and uh, I think the Mkhitaryan issue enables had enabled the clubs to make a stand on on something that was that was front page news fans being 
um, ignored and deprioritised by governing bodies is sadly not front page mm. news because we've become used to it. Um, it it's part of the same problem uh, in that it was a, a poor decision to award Baku the final and it's a poor decision toward the Euro 2020 mm. games and it might be that the knock-on event of this final is that something changes there, although I wouldn't hold my breath on it. Um, but yes, the clubs taking a stand on the player was far more likely than taking a stand on the fans mm. issue, I think, because mm. fans have become kind of ripe for exploitation because because of their self-interest, because they desperately want to be there, because they are sadly consumers with an incredible amount of demand. So mm. UEFA can sort of do what they want on those issues. Mm. I wish they wouldn't, though. <laughs> if you look at it from a football perspective, mm. um, Arsenal, well, actually, both managers, they're going to be defined by this final, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you start with Sarri, what... A, what an odd situation he finds himself in. Third in the league, you know, a potential winner of a European final and unloved, completely unloved, unloved by the fan base and probably unloved by us in the media, really. Um, not getting Is that what... personality or, or philosophy? I think it's personality as much as anything um, because he's, he's never projected himself well. As I understand it, even in Italy, he wasn't a comfortable or enthusiastic communicator, media performer, so he, he hasn't got that you know connection that, that, that he could have done with the supporters um, and Chelsea have just got such an odd relationship with with managers and I, I mean it reminds me of Rafa Benitez winning the Europa League for them I, I, I was at the game and, and in my hotel in Amsterdam took a lift down to breakfast the next day with a couple of Chelsea fans and they were like, oh, what a great night it was last night, blah, blah, blah. And then one of them was like, yeah, but he's got to go, isn't he? He's got to go. <laughs> and that, that, that's what it is with Chelsea fans. They, they, they want something particular out of their manager that Sarri and his foreign ways or whatever certainly doesn't embody. Yeah, because he'll almost leave without a trace. He won't leave any footprints, will he? No, he won't. And, then, and if he goes back to Italy, he at least goes back to, to somewhere where he has created, a, mm. albeit not a trophy-winning legacy, a legacy of, of, of his philosophy. So it enables him, hopefully, to pick up if not where he left off, then certainly just put that down to a, you know, a bad job for all concerned. Um, but it, I, I find it remarkable. There have been issues within his management. There's no doubt about that. He has been, he's been the benefactor of, uh, uh, the beneficiary of, of Eden Hazard's remarkable form, trying to win a move or not. And he's carried the club. There's no doubt about that. Some of the tactics have been a bit <laughs> off. They've won games. Cardiff away is the obvious example mm. where they played dreadfully and won. And they've, feels like they've snuck into the top four through the flaws and faults of others mm. as much as their own strengths. But Chelsea have always been a club that define themselves on results, define themselves on yeah. impact. So it's very, it's very hard for a philosophy manager, a dogmatic manager to come in, achieve the results and then be judged on something <laughs> completely different. I can see why he feels pretty sick. Yeah, so very few people in football understand Chelsea Football Club like Frank Lampard. Yeah. Now... Narrowly failed to go up with Derby. I was hugely impressed by him, and yeah. I think you know his his managerial career will match that of his playing career. Is it too early for him to go back to Chelsea? Um, for most people in his position, to say yes, but I share your feeling that there's something that looks like it might be exceptional about him, and that's not to say that that'll be what it is in the end of the day. But in terms of potential, what he's done at Derby, I think, has been sensational. The football they've played, um, the the challenges of that club that he's, he's surmounted, the the ability to to hang on in there and get to that playoff final and go pretty close. It's it's kind of all been there, and the way he communicates, of course, is 
It's fantastic. Um, for Chelsea, who do look a little bit of a dysfunctional club, then then he would be the unity candidate. And there's so much synergy between him and Jody Morris coming back and, and to a club that's got a transfer ban and is, is finally going to have to rely on its youth. Um, it just, it look, to, to me, it looks like a sort of perfect storm, perfect kind of appointment. And I think Frank would at least get the backing, and it's all relative at Chelsea, but he'd get greater backing than, than any of his predecessors because of, because of who he is. And I suspect, I agree with you, Mike, I suspect he is going to have a great management career and um, Chelsea would be uh, the, the place where you can see Frank Lampard doing it. Mm. Can you see Petr Cech being involved in all that? Because, you know, we've got this situation where, again, I, I think just, just for who he is and what he represents, he should play um, in Baku. Um, he's obviously going to have a coaching career of sorts, would that work in going back to Chelsea? It's been mooted as a as a sort of Pretty director much. of football mm. role, and they are they are a club that's lacking that. Mm. I mean, if they get a, a significant transfer ban, then it looks a slightly redundant. <laughs> but if they get a transfer ban and Lampard is there, then he will have at least have a year of goodwill in which behind the scenes they can try and address some of the mistakes they've mm. made in the last half decade. Um, that leaves them constantly after this cycle of short-termism. If they can try and build something long-term, then then it, it makes sense. He's he's certainly you know he's he's got a Chelsea supporters are odd in that they, they are they feel incredibly disloyal to some people, and Sarri's an obvious example of leaders <laughs> and other. But they also have incredible loyalty yeah. to to players like Petr Cech and to mm. Frank Lampard and to uh, John Terry and that sort of person. So. Yeah, there's an element of the statesman about him. There's an element of the Vincent Company about him, I think, of that able, being able to rise above football's noise and mm. see things slightly calmer, um, which is exactly what Chelsea need mm. off the pitch. Mm. With this final, is it going to be won by the team that makes fewest mistakes? Yeah, it's probably a good way of putting it because they, they've, they've been teams of, you know, obvious strengths but very obvious weaknesses throughout the season. And... Um, Probably slightly, you know, if you, Chelsea's strongest suit is you know, probably being a bit more stable in terms of the just the defensive structure and so on. Um, and Arsenal's is the fabulous attacking line. But then, of course, there's Eden Hazard and lots to throw into the mix. Mm. Um, not a lot really between them. I'd say Chelsea are slightly better on, on paper, but not enough that you'd say they go in as any kind of huge mm. favourites. So it probably will come down to, to moments and, and mistakes. Somebody mentions Hazard there. Um, you know, almost a generational talent. But has he really fulfilled himself at Chelsea, do you think? I think he's probably fulfilled all he could have done at Chelsea. Um, I don't think Chelsea is an easy club for an outsider. Um, because they have these pillars, Lampard and... John Terry and Didier Drogba, they have these very obvious pillars and I think it was always going to be very hard to come in af immediately after or overlapping with that generation and, and become another one of those pillars. But mm. it's, I think they, just, they already had enough. I think what he is, 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 as you say, he's a generational talent. I think his mm. natural talent is above, perhaps even above anyone other than Messi yeah. in terms of his natural ability. Yeah. And I just think he, he's a very difficult club for that becoming obvious. He's not at a club that has this 
Um, you know, it doesn't have this Cruyffian era like Barcelona. It doesn't have this, um, you know, George Best era of Manchester United. It doesn't have that era where we think you are the next so-and-so mm. because he's not the next drug, he's not the next Lampard. Or the next... So he hasn't got anyone to follow, I don't think, at Chelsea. I think he's done all he can. And I think, mm. I hope that Chelsea judges him in hindsight probably better than it has judged and maybe even we've judged along the way because I think he's really special. Yeah. Mm. A special week. Who's going to prevail in the week? Who's going, to, who's going to be your two winners, please? I think Liverpool will win the Champions League final. They're the, the better team, which isn't to denigrate Tottenham, but they, they just are the better team. And it will come down to whether they, they handle it and um, make the most of their strengths and, and advantages. And there hasn't been a sign of, of Liverpool doing that throughout the season. They've, they have been mentally very, very strong, um, very efficient. And I... I don't really see a reason for that to change in Madrid. The other one is so hard to call, but I, I, you know, we've been talking about Hazard, so maybe if you're looking for one factor that might swing it, it would be a valedictory performance by him. OK, Dan? I agree on Liverpool, and I was leaning towards Chelsea, but I'll say Arsenal to be different. <laughs> I think the lack of... I think Rudiger's injury is, yeah. is big for Chelsea. Yeah. Um, and the, having decided to play the game, Arsenal, I think... Mm. because the Champions League's at stake and I just think that might be enough to drag them through. Well, like Dan, I'm going for Liverpool and Arsenal and I hope you forgive this shameless plug. My BT Sport film, State of Play, is being shown after each final. It'd be great if you could watch it. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.